You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Malachi. We've been in the Minor Prophets for, I guess, the past 12 weeks now, um, and we're wrapping up that study today. And, um, you know, during our our time in these prophetic books, we've seen a lot about who God is. We've seen a lot about his attributes. We've seen a lot about what it looks like to image him well by taking those attributes and helping others see who God is um, through the ways that we interact with them, right? And then two weeks ago, we started to look specifically at the prophets who wrote and spoke to Israel after they came out of that time of exile in Babylon, right? So the bulk of the prophets were being written to Israel, warning them about punishment if they didn't get their lives right, if they didn't repent, if they didn't turn from their sin, that God was going to bring Babylon to them and bring judgment. The last three prophets that we've, we're looking at, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, are all books that are written after that time of exile. It's the people coming back to the promised land. It's people coming back to reestablish worship. And so the last couple of weeks, we've, we've been looking at their, um, their lack of passion or lack of desire to re re-engage from a spiritual standpoint, right? They came home, they rebuilt their houses, they rebuilt their natural earthly lives, but they weren't doing a great job of rebuilding their spiritual lives. They had been disconnected from the temple, the temple sat in ruins, they weren't really concerned about re-engaging in worship, and so we saw God calling them back to that. Today, as we look at the book of Malachi, we're going to see that while the temple had been rebuilt, the walls had been rebuilt, the, the structure itself had been reestablished, and people were coming to worship, they were bringing less than their best when it came to attitude and action. Uh, they were doing the bare minimum. They were doing less than the bare minimum, even in some cases. And so Malachi's book is meant to address the fact that if we are going to worship God, we have a responsibility to worship him well uh, in the ways that we prioritize him. All right, and so we're going to see throughout this book uh, some of that theme. Let's jump right in and see our summary sentence for today, though. We are called to honor God in all areas of our life, including the ways we pursue intimacy with each other, the ways we use the resources we are blessed with, and the ways we think about him during seasons of doubt. We are called to honor God in all areas of our life, and what we're going to see in the book of Malachi is that Malachi talks specifically about the ways that we pursue intimacy with each other, the ways we use the resources that we're blessed with, and the ways we think about him during seasons of doubt. For our kids, who we marry, how much money we give away, and what we think about God are all really important to God. And these are themes that God brings about in his uh, discussion through the book of Malachi. Remember, this is the last book that would be written prior to Jesus coming, and so there's about 400 years of silence um, as we wait for the Messiah to arrive. No no written instruction from God. The, the Old Testament becomes complete with the book of Malachi. This prophecy takes place about 100 years after people had come back to the promised land. It's written in the 5th century B.C., so somewhere around 480 B.C. Like I said, the temple had been rebuilt, the walls were up, and now there was concerns about the type of sacrifices that the people were bringing. The message is directed to the people of Jerusalem because they aren't, things aren't going well with their return. Um, they ultimately reverted to living back the way that people were living prior to the exile. So they're kind of re, uh, re-kicking up the same sins. Uh, there's injustice in the land. There's uh, oppression towards the poor. Um, and so God wants to address that before it becomes 
uh, so serious that his judgment would be needed once again. And so if you've read through this book before, you know there's some disputes that, that kind of run true through this book, right? Different questions that God is asking, the people are asking, some responses there. We see some doubting of God's love. The people cry out to God, how have you shown love to us? God's going to respond and show uh, how he has loved them in the past. There's some dishonoring of God's name through the sacrifices that they bring. There's some profaning of God's covenant in the ways that they are marrying and divorcing. And so God feels the need to touch on those topics. Um, There's the questioning of God's justice. Why does he continue to allow bad people to prosper? Uh, Why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? So these things are kind of running true. Um, There's the robbing of God's storehouse that's brought up, the fact that the people were withholding their giving, keeping it for themselves. And then there's the despising of God's service. By the end of it, the people of Israel are crying out to God saying, we're not really sure why it's worth following you, uh, which is a crazy question to, to think, to, to, to utter from your lips. God, I don't know that it's worth, to fo- it's worth following you. And that's kind of where they get by the end of the book. Uh, we don't know if it's worth it. We don't know if we want to anymore. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of bounce around this book, and I want to see you show you some of these themes that I see kind of running through this entire book. It's a lot about worship. It's, about, it's a lot about how we uh, understand what it is that God desires for us to give to him and how we express our worship, not just through coming to church and singing and listening to a sermon, but in all aspects of our life. All right, so let's jump right in and see number one. We worship God in how we interact with others. We worship God in how we interact with others. Specifically, we're going to see that God is very concerned, um, very intentional with the instructions that he gives about the type of people that we pursue intimacy with. In Malachi chapter 2, so we'll start in chapter 2, we'll come back to chapter 1. We're going to cover different, just, about every book, or just about every verse uh, in this book. But in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, look what it says here. It says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. All right, number one, we please God in who we choose to marry. We please God in who we choose to marry. Now look what's happening in this passage. God is addressing some unhealthy, unholy practices when it comes to his people making choices for marriage, right? And so God gives some real practical guidance, some real practical guideline here for his people. Specifically, God is talking about the need for spiritual, uh, spiritual purity and far less about racial purity, right? A lot of people want to use the instructions that God gave in the Old Testament about Israel not marrying people from other nations, other cultures, as though God had it designed that we would only marry people like us. And and I couldn't disagree more with that type of sentiment or thinking or feeling, right? What we see in Scripture is that God was very concerned about the spiritual purity of his people when it came to marriage and far, far less concerned with the racial purity piece, okay? So um, I grew up in in a house where my parents didn't necessarily believe that way, but our extended family had some thoughts like that, and I even came under criticism uh, at one point when um, I had a girlfriend in high school that was uh, from a different country, different culture. Um, this passage isn't talking about that, 
all right? What this passage is talking about is our need as, as believers, as God's people, to choose very carefully the spouses that we align ourselves with based on spiritual purity, based on spiritual purity. So what we have here is, is God addressing the fact that they have pursued love and pursued marriage. Look, the daughter of a foreign God. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God had given very clear instructions about not marrying people from these other cultures. Again, not because of skin color or cultural practices as much as it was about their spiritual practices. Because the goal of marriage, from God's perspective here, is the godly offspring that would be produced. It says um, in verse chapter, five, or chapter 2, verse 15, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So God's desire here is that a man and a woman would come together in marriage, right, and would begin to produce godly offspring, whether that's their own natural offspring, whether that's through adoption, or whether that's just through uh, investment in the local church, where we come alongside and function as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers within the local church setting, right? God's desire is that by bringing two to one, one flesh, that this partnership would be designed to, to create godly offspring, right? And so God says there's a, there's a concern here because you are choosing to marry people outside of our belief system, outside of following Yahweh. These same instructions are given in the New Testament, right? God has a lot to say about who we choose to marry in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, "'Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers.'" For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. I put in my notes, how we enter marriage is a matter of worship. Your spousal choice declares the type of God you want to serve. This is a really strong message for those that are sitting in here today or sitting in the next room or online who aren't married. Because what God is communicating here is that we have to be extremely intentional in who we choose to love and who we choose to pursue. Because what he's about to follow up with is how uh, we are required to stay with that individual, right? That his desire is for divorce not to take place. And so maybe next to our decision to follow Jesus it's probably the next greatest decision that we'll ever make in our life, who we choose to marry. Because it's meant to be a lifetime decision, right? And it's meant to produce godly offspring, meaning that two would come together in unity, wanting to follow Jesus, and their lives together would become consumed with, with uh, producing offspring that want to follow Jesus. And again, that's natural offspring, adopted children that would come into that family, or two people who invest themselves in a church, and become mothers and fathers to kids who need spiritual mommies and daddies, right? That's what God desires marriage to be, that the coming together of man and woman to produce this type of result. And what Israel was guilty of is they were marrying people for superficial reasons, for, for other reasons that pleased them. They were marrying these people from other cultures, and it was, it was causing disruption within God's people, because now you've got people who, who are following other gods, and what we typically see is the one who follows the other god having to influence on the one who follows Christ, right? The, the negative influence typically comes from the other spouse. I put in my notes, we should be drawn to spouses 
who are most obviously believers and not question marks. I think this is a huge message for our, our parents in here too. As we have kids that we're raising and, and as they start to get older and they start to, to have questions and desires and pursuits, man, it is, is, it is on us, this massive burden of responsibility to make sure that we're clearly instructing our kids in what God's word has to say about marriage and the types of people that we would pursue. Right, that, that, that we need to have our kids bought into the idea that we, we don't pursue question marks. Not because these people aren't valuable, not because they're not, they're not loved in God's eyes, but we can't afford to pursue question marks when it comes to our marriage situations. Right? And, and as parents, we have such a responsibility to instill that in the hearts of our kids from an early age. Right? Because this world's going to say other things are important when it comes to, to dating and pursuing marriage. Right? We're going we're gonna to be inclined to think that any and every other thing can matter, whether it's looks and appearance, whether it's interest and, and chemistry. Right? But what God's word says is that the, 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 um, the unity that exists between the God that we want to serve is most important. And we please God in who we choose to marry when we are a believer ourselves, and we pursue someone with intent, someone who also is a strong believer. All right, so we please God in who we marry. And God's concerned about the fact that his people are not doing that. They're pursuing anything and everything that pleases them, maybe from an earthly physical perspective, but not from the spiritual side of things. It says in verse, um, let's go to number two, and then we'll go to verse 13. We please God in how we choose to remain married. We please God in how we choose to remain married. Look what it says in verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, he begins to address the concept of divorce here. Some of your translations may look differently here in verse 16. Raise your hand if you have a translation that says God hates divorce in verse 16. If you have the ESV, it doesn't say that. All right, so there's, there's some flexibility here or some question mark, I guess would be the better phrase, for exactly how to interpret this passage, right? So you're taking it from the original language to a language that we speak today. What, what was the original language saying and what does it mean for us today? Some translations say God hates divorce. My translation, the ESV says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. So there's, there's, uh, there's not clarity there as to whether the feeling and expression is coming from God or from the individual divorcing, okay? Based on what we know about other passages in Scripture that talk about divorce, right, that, that it's obviously not God's plan, but obviously there's some things that are built in there because of the hardness of our heart, right? I think the ESV gets it, gets it right in regards to the translation here because what's being said is that God has issue with the man who chooses to divorce his wife, right, because he decides that he doesn't love her anymore. 
right? This has nothing to do with some of the things that we see in other passages of Scripture where there was infidelity, there was um, desertion, where you've got a believing spouse, an unbelieving spouse. Do we stay together? Do we not stay together? Right? Like God helps fill in some of the gaps there with the gray areas. What God is very concerned about, which is a, a, a thing that is running rampant in our culture today, right, are individuals who just decide to opt out of marriage because it's just not working anymore. Just don't, just don't have the same feelings that I did for this person anymore. Um, time to look elsewhere. We've come to a mutual decision, a mutual um, decision to move on. And we're going to go in different directions, right? And God says, that's not okay. He says, you've made a covenant. You've made a commitment. And look what he, look what he says here. He says, and, and, and your garment has become a garment of violence, which, which sounds kind of confusing, right? But if you look in some of the Old Testament culture, this passage makes a little bit more sense maybe, particularly in Ezekiel chapter 16. This concept of the garment and how the garment was used. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. This is in reference to how God views us. It says, when I passed by you again and saw you, beloved, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. There's this picture that the husband's garment is meant to be a place of protection, a place of covering, a place of safety, a place of security. And what's addressed here is God says, he's, he's speaking to these, in, the, in this case, these men who are divorcing their wives and, and getting rid of them because they just decide they don't love them anymore. They just don't want them anymore. He says, you've turned your garment into a garment of violence. You, you've, you've, you've been violent towards the one that you were supposed to love and protect. He's concerned about it, and it's not okay for his people to act this way. I know for me, um, you know, taking care of my mom during this time of sickness and my sister and I going back and forth about how to take care of her and whatnot, like it's, it's reinvigorated like feelings and emotions that I have about the two divorces that my mom has gone through. Because there's been multiple times where I've thought to myself, where, where's the guy who was supposed to be taking care of my mom right now who committed his life to her, right? Two men who looked at her and said, I just don't love you anymore. Like, I've, I've either found somebody else or I've found other things that I love more, and so I'm going to get rid of you, right? Because I just don't love you anymore. And I feel the violence of the garment because I look at my mom and I know that her insurance stinks, right? Like, she... She doesn't have like the, the setup that she would have had had she still been in these other marriages, right? And thanks be to God, like my, my, my God takes care of my mom far better than any earthly man could, right? But this passage rings true to me because I feel like, man, there's, there was violence that took place, even though it may not have felt that way from the individual at the time who was divorcing my mom. Violence, like hurt, damage through these decisions to look at someone and say, hey, I just don't love you anymore. God says, this isn't okay. This isn't, how, this isn't how my people get to function, right? Which is a reminder to us that we gotta be careful who we choose to marry because it is meant to be for life, right? And what's, what's super sad here is that what's probably happening in this culture that Malachi is writing to is that they're probably divorcing their Hebrew spouses to marry the foreign ones. That they are they're walking away from people who love God 
to go running after people who don't. And God says, I'm concerned about the people that you choose to marry. I'm concerned about the way that you're exiting your marriages. Like, it's just not right. It doesn't reflect me. So not only do we, we honor God in the types of people that, that, that we choose to marry, but we certainly maintain our marriage in a way that is a matter of worship too. Our spousal faithfulness reflects the level of faithfulness that we have towards God. And God says, I, I, want you to, I want you to show your love to me. I want you to show your worship to me by the people that you choose to marry and by the ways that you stay committed to that marriage. Right? And, that, and that's, just, that's a strong emphasis to us to, to examine ourselves again. For those that are single, that we'd be super dialed into the fact that God desires something great for us if we pursue marriage. And there's things that he would desire for us to stay away from. As parents, we have such a responsibility to instill that in, our, in our hearts, the hearts of our kids. Right? For those of us that are married, that we have to fight like, like no other to make sure that we, 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 we strive to love our spouse and to serve our spouse, realizing that as we do so, as we choose to do so, we are reflecting something far greater to those around us. Right? Our commitment to stay in a marriage that's hard, that's difficult, that's challenging. Man, we are communicating something fantastic to those around us, the impact that the gospel can have on somebody. We worship God in how we interact with others, particularly in how we pursue intimacy. Number two, we worship God in how we use our resources. Going into chapter one now in Malachi. Malachi chapter one, verse two. Actually, let's, let's go to uh, verse six. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If, I, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept any offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and it's fruit that it is. It's food made to be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. We please God by giving him the best of ourselves. What this section in, in Malachi chapter one tells us is that God cares about what we do and how we do it. What God desired was their best and what they were giving him was their spares, what was their leftovers, right? They're bringing these sacrifices that Leviticus chapter 22 tells them they can't bring, right? So they're supposed to bring like their best sacrifices to this rebuilt temple and instead, they're bringing the lame, the sick, the blind, right? Like the, the animals that have no value to them. The animals that, that they can't use really for anything else, they're saying, oh, here, we'll, we'll give this to God, right? We'll bring this to God. Here, here's our sacrifices. 
And you have the priests who are taking them and accepting them. Because as you go into chapter 2, God has to address the priests who are allowing this to take place. These animals, God says, they're not even worthy of your governor, much, much less could they be worthy for me. But in chapter 2, it says, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. What's he say there? He says, hey, uh, pastors, elders, you people that are allowing my people to offer less than their best. He says, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. Like you're tolerating it. He tells the priest, I'm basically going to disqualify you as a priest because I'm going to take the dung from your sacrifices and rub it all over you, which is a, obviously a gross picture. But it would have made them unclean. It would have made them incapable of being in the, the role of service that they were in. Right? And so God's, God's furious at the fact that the people are just kind of giving their cast off stuff to God. And that the priests who, who make a living off of this are basically saying, it's okay. It's okay for you to give God less than your best because we need you to come and we need you to worship and we need you to give whatever you'll give because we make a living off of it. And God's appalled by this, this culture, this, this setup. This is how the priest should have been acting. It says in verse 6, True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from your way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people. Why does it, why does it matter? Why, why does God care here? Right? Well, one, the type of sacrifice that the people bring is a reflection of the value that they place on God. Okay, And then two, think about what the Old Testament sacrifices were meant to point us to. Like they're meant to point us to Jesus. So if God requires perfect sacrifice and the people are bringing less than that, what does it do to the picture of Jesus that those sacrifices are meant to point us to? Right? And so God is very concerned about maintaining this picture to, to set the heart stage for Jesus to show up. But he's also concerned about the priority of the people. Right? Like If all they're concerned about is giving God less than their best— it makes, it makes perfect sense why when it comes to who they're going to marry and whether they're going to stay in a marriage or not, that they give very little regard to God's instructions, right? Because they don't value it. They don't value it, and it's made evident by the fact that they don't bring their best to him. He's not a priority. He's not first place in their life, right? And so that, that filters down into the rest of their lives, right? It filters down into what happens outside of Sunday worship, right? All aspects of their life are being impacted by the fact that they don't really care. They don't really value God, we please him by giving him our best. Number two, we please him by giving to him and then trusting him. You fast forward into chapter three, and this topic of giving comes back up, not in the form of sacrifices, but in the form of tithes and offerings. It says, for I, the Lord, verse six of chapter three, I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? 
in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down from you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What was happening here? The people were guilty of not giving God their tithes. They were holding back from it, right? Which I'm so thankful that in our church, like we, we just really don't talk about this, right? Like this has been a, a, a non-issue for us since we planted our church. Our giving always defies the odds for me. Like when I look at the amount of people that we have and the amount of giving that we give, right? We've set up our, our church in such a way where we, we give a lot of our money away. So um, this isn't an, an area that I feel like we ever really even have to talk about, um, but when we come across it in Scripture, it's appropriate for us to, to mention as a point of uh, where our heart is, where our heart is in hanging on to the stuff that God has given to us and being willing to share and give it to those in need around us, whether that's through giving to the local church so that we can pool our money together and give it to missionaries that are overseas, or whether that's simply serving people around us in our context with, with ways that they have needs, Right? What, what's, what's really at stake here is that when we are willing to give to God, it demonstrates our belief about ownership, right? We acknowledge that he owns everything and that when we give to him, we can trust him to take care of us. But that's really what's going on in this passage here. Lest we think that we need to hang on to our stuff in order to make sure that we're taken care of, like, like at that point, we have erred on the side of, of not believing in God's provision, not believing in his ownership and thinking that our security lies with the decisions that we make about our money. Right? And what God is challenging his people here to remember is that by giving, right, by giving, we are, we are making a declaration that we believe God owns all of it anyways, right, and that he is ultimately going to take care of us and provide for us. But we worship him. We worship him by using our resources, by giving him our best, by giving uh, what he has blessed us with, right, so that it can be used to help take care of others. And then number three, we worship God in how you process your thoughts, we worship God in how we process our thoughts. The other key component that's happening here in the book of Malachi, we've seen the topic of marriage and intimacy, who we choose to marry, how we choose to stay married. We've seen how the sacrifice system and the, the tithing system were a reflection of the people's commitment to God. But there's something else that's going on in this book, and that's the thought process that these people are having about God. In the midst of their everyday lives, circumstances are occurring and happening, and it's causing them to question God. Causing them to question God. Look what it says in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may, be, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We're pleased, number one, we please God, number one, by trusting his love due to his past faithfulness. You read a passage like this, and you say, Man, this is, this is kind of difficult. It's, it's talking about God hating people, which we don't typically think about God hating people right? Um, 
And this is a difficult passage. We don't have time to, to delve into it. We've looked at it before when we looked at Romans chapter 9. Um, and I can't remember if I shared it with you at that point, but really what should cause us concern when we read this passage is that God chooses to love Jacob here, right? Not so much that God hates Esau, but that God would choose to love Jacob, right? Because mankind is sinful. Mankind is rebellious. Mankind does not deserve God's love, right? Mankind deserves God's wrath. Mankind deserves God's judgment. And that's exactly what Esau gets here. His people group, the Edomites, we've talked about them in the book of Obadiah, right? They get God's judgment because of their sin. And God says, I'm going to desecrate them. They're not coming back, right? There's no rebuilding effort here. Um, They're the wicked country. I'll be angry at them forever. But he's talking to the people of Israel, and he says, you're different, right? I've chosen to love you. I've chosen to restore you. I've chosen to commit myself to you. And God's love is seen through the promises that he makes to restore something that unbelievers don't get to enjoy, right? We see Edom is is kind of banished here, but look at chapter 3, verse 16. Look what it says about God and how he looks and views his people. Verse 16 of chapter 3, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I wake up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, verse, uh, chapter 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, right? He's talking about this this great day of the Lord when Jesus comes back and judgment and wrath are going to be poured out on evildoers. Like it's going to be a horrible day for those who don't follow Jesus. But look verse two, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God says, man, don't question my love. Don't question my goodness. I have been committed to you from the very beginning. And I continue to show my goodness to you. I continue to show my grace to you. Both in the past and in the promises that I have for you in the future. Number two, we please God by thinking the best of him in regards to our future. The people are kind of looking around and they see bad people prospering and they're kind of like, why would we follow God? Like, looks like if you do bad things, you prosper. It says in verse 17 of chapter two, you've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What's happening here? The the people are looking at their circumstances, they're frustrated, and basically they start to question God. God, I'm not sure if you love me. 
God, I'm not sure if you're capable of justice. I don't know if you care about what's happening. I don't know if you care about evildoers. I don't know that you're capable of acting, right? They begin to assume the worst about God. Despite all this history of past faithfulness, they look at God and say, I don't think you're a God of love. I don't think you're a God of justice. I don't think you're a God who cares. And God says, I'm wearied by that. Like, I'm concerned by that. Because he says, I'm doing everything in a way that should be showing my love to you, <laughs> should be showing my justice to you, right? What he, what he goes on to say um, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Let's talk about John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purer of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What's God saying? He said, look, why do I not bring justice towards bad people? Why have I not brought judgment towards evil yet? Because my first step in the justice piece is to save evil people. It's to save bad people, right? He says, I, I, want, I want to be the refiner who comes in and purifies before the great day of the Lord when I have to bring judgment, right? He's the just justifier is what Romans 3 talks about, right? He's one who comes, dies on the cross so that evil people can be saved before the great day where evil is judged, right? He, he's, he's building this this big global plan that allows people to escape his justice. And yet the people are saying, why don't you judge bad people? Why don't you judge bad people? And they've missed the fact that your cries for justice would have caused you to be judged if God wasn't showing grace and mercy and salvation prior to bringing his justice. But what do they do? They think the worst. They don't like their circumstances. They don't like how God's doing things. And so they, they think the worst of God. I had to make a, a decision uh, about a student this week and the parent fired an email back to me and uh, said, you do a poor job of showing Jesus to people. And I just read that and I was like, oh. I was like, I was like, I am wearied by your words here, right? Like if, if ever there is to be a time in my life where I image God well, I would hope it would be during my series on like imaging God well and trying to show his love and grace and mercy to others, right? And so I read that and I'm almost crippled by it because I'm like, I feel like everything that I'm doing in this situation with this parent is the exact opposite of what you're saying is happening, right? I feel like I am showing love and grace and mercy and Jesus the best way that I know how to you. And for the response to be, you do a really poor job of showing Jesus to others. I mean, I feel like I just needed to tell the elders, hey, I got to resign. Like, if, you, if your pastor's not showing Jesus to people, then, you know, we got a problem. And I feel like God's saying the same thing to, to the people here. They're like, 
How do you love us? How do you show justice? Like, you're not doing anything right. God's like, are you kidding me? Like, could I show you love any better than I'm showing it to you? Could I bring justice any better than I'm going to bring it? He challenges them to, to think basically the best based off of, hey, past faithfulness, promises of things to come. Like, give me the benefit of the doubt here. Give me the benefit of the doubt. And so I put in my notes, like, we need to avoid evil skepticism, particularly towards God, right? They couldn't see God's justice. They couldn't see how God was doing things, and so they doubted his concern and basically said, you don't love us, and you're not concerned about taking care of us. And God responds in this book and says, that that couldn't be more untrue, right? I'm fully committed to you. I love you. Here's the promises I've made. Here are the promises that I'm going to keep. I told you that the people kind of leave the last things that they say here to God and say, I I don't know if we want to follow you. It says in verse 14 of chapter 3, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit in keeping his charge, walking in his morning for the Lord of hosts? So I want to close with that question. Why is serving God not in vain? Why is it worth it all? What do we see in this book that would give us reason to say it is worth it to follow him? It's not in vain. Number one, he never, he's never changing. He says in verse 6 of chapter 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. That's one of the most comforting things to me about God. Because in a life where everything around us seems to change, even people that we might be the closest to from a human standpoint, people change, right? For God to time and time again communicate in his word that he does not change is one of the most comforting things to me because of how he has revealed himself. To reveal himself as a God who loves and forgives and shows grace and mercy, to know that he is a God that never changes brings such comfort to my heart because everything else in my life changes except for the one thing that I absolutely need not to change, and that's the sovereign ruler of this universe, and he has communicated very clearly he does not change, and so I will continue to follow him. It's absolutely worth it to trust him. Number two, he's always ready to forgive. He's always ready to forgive, and that will never change. Chapter 3, verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, and you've not kept them, right? What's he saying? From the very beginning, you guys have been a bunch of screw-ups, right? Like, you keep messing up, you keep sinning, you keep running from me. But what does he say? Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Right? He's a God that keeps turning back to us as we turn back to him, right? He's a God who is always willing to forgive, And then number three, he's at work in me, around me, and beyond me. I love that that, that I serve a God who who has global things at work and not just a focus on my life. Look what it says in in chapter 1, verse 5. He's talking about how he's going to deal with uh, their enemies. He says, your eyes shall see this. And you're going to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God's message here is, is he tells his people, look, it's not just about you. You are included in this massive global plan that I'm doing. Right? And I love the fact that, that God is including me in, in all of these big, great plans that extend far beyond just this little small life 
that I have on earth right now, right? And, and what we see in this book is that he's working, he's working in us, around us, and beyond us so that we can be saved and so we can be included in this great plan when he comes back. Where justice will come upon the evil, justice will come upon those who have not followed him, and he's going to eradicate everything in this life that is bad. It'll finally come to, to a head where he says justice is happening, right? And then we get ushered into eternity with him. And our response, as we close, our response is found in chapter 4, verse 4, and that's to remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. It's to remember God's laws, to keep those laws as we wait for Jesus to come back, right? And specifically what we've seen today, the ways that we honor God, the ways that we keep those laws, the ways that we follow him, is that we're super intentional about the the people that we pursue intimacy with because it is a declaration of the God that we intend to serve, who we choose to, to become intimate with, who we choose to marry, right? And then together, right? We are to use the resources and the, the gifts and abilities that God has given to us to honor him, to give him our best, right? To give him our best. And then when, when times are tough and when times are challenging and, and times are difficult and we're tempted to question God, whether he loves us, whether he's in control, whether he's doing anything, right? That we're prone to think the best of him based on his faithfulness to us, Right? based on his promises to us, that we keep trusting him even when it's difficult to do so. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the many truths and teachings that are found here. God, I know we've covered a lot of it quickly today, but God, I pray that uh, the truth of it would, would remain in our hearts. God, help us to see that you're super concerned about the the details of our life and that the choices and decisions that we make ultimately reflect what we think about you and the value that we put upon you. From the choices that we make about who to marry, from the choices that we make within that marriage, from the ways that we choose to spend our money and use our resources, all the way down to the thoughts that we have when we're sitting around looking at our circumstances, questioning things, God, help us to realize that, that you've laid a, an unbelievable track record that screams that you love us and that you care for us. So God, I pray that you'd guard us and protect us from doubting you when our circumstances seem to, to say otherwise. God, help us to think of the best of you when our flesh is tempted to doubt you. Lord, help us to remember that you love us, that you're committed to us, that you are working all things for good. And that even though the the wicked may look to prosper around us right now, Father, I pray that you would remind us that you're saving wicked people right now too so they can be spared from that day of justice. So God, help us not to think that you're negligent or unconcerned about the evil around us. But God, help us to see that the fact that you tolerate it right now is just another nod to your mercy and grace, that you're a God who doesn't change, that you're a God who is willing to forgive. God, help us to keep following you because it's worth it. 
It's worth following a God who doesn't change. It's worth following a God who's always willing to forgive. We thank you for being that type of God to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.